The reading this morning is taken from Mark 6, um, verses 30 to 44, and you'll find it on page 1009. The apostles gathered round Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place, but many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take eight months of a man's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have, he asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said, five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of men who had eaten was 5,000. Thank you. Let's just pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us and that you are a God who speaks to us today through your word and you change lives through your word. So we pray, Lord, that as we read it, we would understand it and that your Holy Spirit would teach us and lead us on. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's so lovely to be with you. I hear some of you have finished your, your exams. Who's finished? Woohoohoo! Are you celebrating? Who's still got to go? Oh, bless you. Well, thanks for coming. You could be studying, but you've made the right choice. You're coming to worship the Lord. And he loves that, that you've prioritized him. You've got good patterns in your life. Well done. It is really lovely to be here with you this morning. I'm um, Nadine, and I'm from an organization called Tear Fund, which many of you will have heard about, but many of you won't have done. Um, so I am hoping this morning to tell you a little bit about us. Um, and help you understand us. Because as a church, when you give to the church, a proportion of that is given away to support other organizations. And a part of that um, proportion of that is given to support tier funds. So I want you to know what your money is supporting. And we want you to pray for us as well. We crave um, the prayers of our supporters. So hopefully I can inspire you with what we're doing. Um, but more than inspiring you about what we're doing, I want you to inspire you about what God is doing what he is doing across the world, and what we're seeing him do through local churches and the power of the Bible to change people's lives forever. is powerful, really powerful. And so I'm going to tell you some stories to do that. But first, let me tell you a tiny bit about Tear Fund. We started 50 years ago when there was a crisis in West Africa. There was famine, there was conflict going on. And at that time, Christians across the UK poured in donations to the Evangelical Alliance saying, we, you know, we, are, we cannot 
not respond. We have to respond to this appalling thing going on in the world when we see what's going on. So a relief fund, the Evangelical Alliance Relief Fund, Tear Fund, was started at that point, and we've been going for 50 years ever since. And essentially, we do three things. We're Christians passionate about seeing an end to global poverty. That's who we are. And we are convinced that poverty is more than just um, a kind of economic, haven't got money, but poverty is complex. And poverty is also poverty in spirit. And if you address poverty, you have to address not just people's physical needs, but their spiritual needs as well. So we work through local churches. We're convinced that the local church is the vehicle through which God is bringing restoration to this broken broken world. So we have a, a, a huge value on working with local churches to empower them to be everything that the local church was made to be, that God chose us to be, this transforming presence in the place where he's put us to be. So we do three things. We respond to disasters when they happen, and we re respond through partners on the ground, Christian partners on the ground, churches and Christian organizations. So when disasters happen, you can know that if you give to Tear Fund, it's going to go to a kind of spiritual material response to, that, to people in that situation. And then we stay in those communities, and in the poorest communities in the world, poorest countries in the world, we are working there to support local churches um, to be everything God chose them to be, to respond to the poverty that exists there, and to know how to, to respond to it, and how to lift themselves out of poverty. So we work with local communities. And then the last thing that we do is around advocacy, and it's about encouraging people to use their voices to speak up on behalf of the poor. Because if we look through the Bible, we see that actually that's the kind of worship the Lord, time and again, that's what God calls out for his people, to be people who speak up on behalf of the poor. So we make a lot of noise about issues that face the poor. If you go onto our website at the minute, you will see a lot about rubbish. Now, we are concerned about rubbish and the issue in the world with waste because we see it affecting the poorest of the poor in countries of the 8 billion on the world, 2 billion live in countries where waste is not collected. So it blocks sewers. They get um, their children playing in toxic water. They, they're burning their rubbish in local communities. They've got respiratory problems and people are dying because of this. So waste is a problem that is affecting the poorest of the poor. Click on our website in a minute. You will see that we're talking a lot about it. And would you all sign our campaign? Richard Attenborough's talking about it because we've just done this report, which is the first report that's come out. We've done it with two other organizations. The first one that's highlighted the problem of waste on people as opposed to seas and things like that. So if you, I'd encourage you, use your voice. We're calling on multinational covers, um, companies like Unilever and Pepsi and Coca-Cola to be accountable for the waste they are producing. You can make your voice count. Use it to speak up on behalf of the poor. So that's who we are. We um, respond to disasters, we work with local communities, and we speak up on behalf of the poor. And I have got some great news for you today about global poverty. Because for the first time since 1980, world poverty has been falling. No, I said that wrong. Since 1980, world poverty has been falling for the first time in human history. So that's good news, isn't it? It's getting better. It's um, decreasing. Now, um, I need six volunteers who think that's a great thing. If you nodded your head there, go on, jump up quickly. I need six volunteers just to stand here. I'm not going to ask any questions. You're not going to be put on the spot. Just standing here. Thank you. 
So one here, and then I need five more over here. Please, five that side, one here. That would be great. Oh, excellent. Now, 40 years ago, the world was very divided with one billion people living the kind of life that we would recognize that we live here, living in developed countries where they have education. <laughs> yes. So you have huge opportunities. You've got education, you've got running water, you can have a shower when you like, if you like. <laughs> you've got plenty to eat, uh, you've got opportunities to travel, you've got healthcare, one billion living like that. But you had five billion living in poverty. That was the situation. Now the amazing good news story is that over the last four years, four billion have shifted. They've been in countries like South Africa, Mexico, Thailand, Malaysia, the Philippines, and they, no, 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 I'm sorry, he's over there. No, 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 you're on your own. Because five, these four billion people in those, four, in those countries have developed, they've been a success story of development over the last 40 years. And um, in many ways, we live in a golden age because so many people have escaped the trap of poverty. Diseases like malaria and measles, which kill people, are decreasing. Uh, more children are in school than ever before. Life expectancy is increasing. These are all great things, aren't they? So since um, 1990, the number of children who die every day has halved. That's extraordinary. So 17,000 more children every single day who will now live to realize their potential. Great news. Clap. I think that's a good clap. Woo, woo, woo. Thank you. Oh, I'm sorry. I don't know where you're going. I need you back still. Sorry. We, we weren't clapping you. We were clapping the success, you see. <laughs> now, the trouble is... <laughs> the trouble is that... Your moment will come. The trouble is this golden age doesn't extend to everyone. We have one billion people who are trapped in poverty, mainly are in Africa, in Asia, and in countries where there are civil wars. Um, and for the bottom billion, this is the terrible part of the, the flip side of the good news story. Life has actually been getting worse for people in the bottom billion over the last 40 years, rather than better. So there's a writer um, uh, uh, who wrote a book called The Bottom Billion, and in that is fascinating read if you want something to read about this. He talks about how the people living in countries who are in the bottom billion, although they coexist with us in 21st century living, their lifestyle, that what hallmarks their life, it's more like 14th century Britain. In fact, I, was in, I had a friend from Uganda who was over here in March, and I took her to York to visit a church, and we went to the Jorvik Museum, if anyone's been there, where the Vikings. We went round, she was utterly fascinated. She wanted to go back the next day to see again, because she was saying, this is exactly what life is like in Uganda. Everything, we, I mean, it's extraordinary. So the bottom billion live in countries where they are torn apart by civil wars, where they, uh, life expectancy is much lower, where they have to walk for hours to collect water, and firewood to cook on, where 14% of babies die every day, sorry, before their first birthday, where plagues like malaria are still killing people. And today, every minute, a child under the age of five dies because of dirty water and poor sanitation. So um, a great success story, but also a tragedy because life is getting worse for those. And we live, what we would say at Tear Fund is we live at this tipping point because 
actually, we have, there's a huge success story of development, but it's about to unravel because of climate change. It's all beginning to unravel and get a whole lot worse, as you all know, I know. Now, should we celebrate them? Thank you. <laughs> you can sit down. So those are some facts, but let me tell you about a couple of people to bring that a little bit home, because um, otherwise it's just numbers and facts, isn't it? Maybe we could have some pictures up. And the first one is a, a story. I haven't met this woman, but she's someone who lives in Chad. Um, she's called Jumana. She's someone that, if you follow Tear Fund, you might remember us talking about a couple of years ago. We met her when a team went out there. And in Chad, um, desertification is happening where, because of climate change, the Sahara Desert is becoming greater, the rains are failing, and crops are failing. Therefore, people are, are dying of hunger. So Jumana has already lost one of her children to malnutrition. And here... When our team found her, they found her digging in an ant's nest to pull out grass seed that the ants had buried there to make a broth to feed her children. I mean, that is, is that not appalling that we live in an age where we could go, we can just go out there, we can buy whatever we want, and yet you have a woman having to dig for grass seed to keep her child alive. Um, if we go to the next picture, please. Um, I heard about her, but actually um, it goes even deeper for you when you've heard stories and then you meet people and we went to this village in northern Uganda which is um, an area just like I was saying for those countries in the bottom billion torn apart by civil war so there was an insurgency against the government in the early part of this century and then there was the Lord's Resistance Army a rebel group who went around doing atrocious just atrocities appalling and um, in this village, we met, we went to a community where Tear Fund wasn't yet working to kind of see the contrast so we could see where we're working, where we weren't, and what life is, to understand what life is like for people. And we met a woman there called Teresa who, um, she had a whole bunch of children, little children with her and holding a baby, and we were told uh, these were her children. But we were also told that her husband had been killed by um, the Lord's Resistance Army about 15 years ago about 14, 15 years ago. So we were, you can imagine the mental thing you're doing. Okay, so husbands died. These aren't her husband's children. Whose are they? And the picture began to emerge that actually, you know, she's living day to day, growing crops on... She's going to work for somebody else, growing their crops on their land, being paid a bit of food to keep her children day to day existence. And along comes a man helping her out a bit, wanting favours for that, and she just has one baby after another, and then they clear off when she becomes pregnant. So she's left with these, this string of children. And it's just, we, we understood what grinding poverty is like when she told us her story. And um, do you know, we were so dumbstruck by it, we couldn't even take a picture of her. I think we were all so shocked by her story, and we came away with just a picture from a distance of her little group of huts that were falling apart. And some of you will have had the real privilege, actually, to be able to travel and to see that life isn't, it's not really like Cambridge in most places in the world. And you'll have had the opportunity to travel and see how people in other parts of the world are living. And for me, that's one of the, the most valuable things about that we can, as churches, um, give ourselves is this connection with life in different parts of the world that opens our eyes to see what it's really like for a lot of people. So there is a chronic need in the world today, and it seems wrong to me, and I'm sure most of you, that actually we in the 21st century can coexist with people like Jumana and Teresa living that kind of day-to-day -day existence. 
And the passage of scripture that we had read to us this morning speaks to these issues really powerfully. Um, it's a familiar story, but we're going to look at it this morning in a way that you may not have considered before. Um, and I hope that it will help you understand how it's read by people living in very different contexts from us. So you might want to open. It's on page 1009 in the church Bibles. So the passage describes a situation where there's a great need. There was a spiritual hunger, people following Jesus, lapping up his teaching. He seemed to have authority. He connected people with a spiritual reality that just brought them life. They loved it. And there was also a material hunger there. People were uh, in physical need. They were needing physical healing, which we're told about in the other accounts of this story. And um, they were hungry for food come the end of the day. They hadn't taken everything that they needed. And so they were hungry at the end of the day. And probably they did not have the same level of food security that we enjoy. Uh, so that was the situation then. Uh, and that speaks actually to situation today because we know today that there is a spiritual hunger in the world. People are longing for spiritual meaning. And when we've found that ourselves, we can sometimes forget what other people are experiencing. And I have to sometimes remember back my own journey. I mean, you're younger, a lot younger than most of you than I am. But I'm seeing a few around who are a little bit older. But I grew up in a, a family that wasn't, um, we didn't go to church. And I, by the time I was a teenager, I was really angsty about what on earth is life about. Is there any point? I used to write in my diaries, is there, what happens, you know, when we die? Is, it, is that just it? What's the point? Life seems meaningless. And then wonderfully, the, I stumbled upon a church that had some youth work going on. They were just starting a youth group, and they invited me to go along to see Billy Graham. And I'd never heard of Billy Graham, so I thought I was going to a pop concert when I said yes. <laughs> it sounds like some of you have heard of him. And imagine my surprise when somebody gets up and starts preaching. But you know, to a hungry soul, it was absolute life to me to hear his message. I'd never heard there's a God who made us, who loves us. And it transformed my life completely. And there are people walking around Cambridge, your friends, and actually they're spiritually hungry. They're longing for some spiritual connection. They may seem like they've got everything all together. There may even be people here this morning who've come in, and you've come in because you're thinking, there's got to be more to life than what I'm experiencing. So there's a spiritual hunger around in our country. And there's a material hunger around in our country as well. There's a huge rise in people using um, food banks. Last year, the Trussell Trust reported a 19%, 19% increase in one year on the food parcels given out. And more than half a million of those were to children. So across the world, there are one billion living like Teresa and Germana, and there are, quest there are people living in our own country as well. And you walk by people, don't you, in Cambridge the whole time, you'll see people who've obviously got very sorry stories in their lives. There's great need here as well. And this story from Mark's Gospel addresses situations that we see in the world around us, whether it's overseas or whether it's here. And it raises questions about our responsibility to those in need and how we can best help those in need. Because I don't know about you, but I find myself paralyzed sometimes, like, how do I help? So I want to address those two questions this morning as we look at this story. 
So the first thing is our responsibility to those in need. So if you look at verse 34, um, it says, When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. And in other stories, as I said, Jesus healed the sick. And in this story we go on, we see that he's concerned that they are hungry for food as well. And what we see from this is Jesus is not bothered just about people's spiritual connection with God. He's concerned about people's materials, physical lives. And Jesus is the, physical, is the visible likeness of the invisible God. So we know when we look at what Jesus is like, he's showing us the character and the nature of God. And what we know very clearly then is that God has compassion, as Jesus had compassion, God has compassion on those who have physical needs. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. They needed caring for. They needed leading to water. They needed leading to food. So that's Jesus. That's what God is like. Now, by contrast, there is, no, there is a limit to the disciples' compassion. They're tired And they're inclined to leave the people to their own food, to find their own food. So in verse 35, it says, By this time it was late in the day, so the disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. You see, they've done a lot of ministry. They've been working with Jesus. They've been working hard, and actually now they're ready to turn off, to switch off, and to relax go home, put their feet up, you know, do whatever you do on a Saturday night. I don't know what they do. I guess it's very different. But there you go. They're ready to snuggle down and switch off. And I know myself that actually when I'm faced with a lot of need, I sometimes don't want to be inconvenienced as well. I want to switch off. I want to turn away. There are limits on what I'm prepared to do. Uh, I'm happy to help, but I really love my own comforts. And, um, and it's easier sometimes just to switch off and, and look away. I, I've been very personally challenged by um, the couple who lead our small group that we go to in our church. And they've set up Beesome in Sheffield. And they're an amazing couple. And they um, have just, they, at our small group a couple of weeks ago, they said, oh, please pray for us. We've got someone coming round later. We've signed up to have someone come and live with us in our home. There's an organization that works with... Um, People have been trafficked and rehousing them once they've got status to remain here. And uh, so they were giving up a a room in their house to have someone come and live with them. I was so challenged because I was like, inside I was thinking, wow, could I do that? Would I be inconvenienced to give up a room and have someone come and live with us? We've had lodgers in the past at a certain stage in our life. But really, you know, that feels like quite hardcore and I was really challenged because I know there are limits sometimes to what I will say yes to, to the Lord. I don't know about you. Maybe you find there are limits and you want to close your eyes and maybe walking here even to church. Like me, as I walked this morning, I walked over past people sleeping in the street. You know, clearly they have got sad stories and they're in need. And we want to turn away, don't we? We don't always know how to help. We don't want to be inconvenienced sometimes. We don't want to stop. And the problem is that Jesus challenges us to respond. That's the challenge of this story. He doesn't let the disciples off the hook. He says, you give them something to eat. 
And we have a responsibility to those in need. We can't just turn a blind eye, absorbed by the appetites of our culture that it creates and feeds in us, and oblivious to those who are living in poverty. And we need to be careful not to limit as well the scope of the kingdom of God, that we expect God to be doing this stuff, but not that stuff around responding to needs that people have. You see, the kingdom of God is far-reaching. And Jesus challenges us to, to think about how we consider, we, to consider that um, when we care for people in need, it's part of our Christian responsibility. And we're going to think next move on to think about, well, how do we do that? But for firstly, let's just establish we've got a responsibility. You can't really get away from that by Jesus's response, can you? So let's move on to the second point and think, therefore, well, how, therefore, how do we respond to those in need? And it's a deeper question. And um, there are some fascinating insights, I think, in this story uh, for us to think about. So the disciples' response to the challenge to feed everyone was disbelief. Jesus said, you feed them. And they said, but that would cost the earth. We could spend eight months' wages buying food for all these people. They cannot imagine how it is possible to meet such a great need. There were 5,000 men plus the women and all the children, probably a crowd of around 10,000 people. And they felt, clearly they felt overwhelmed at the prospect of trying to meet such a great need. And I don't know about you, but, you know, I feel overwhelmed when I think about one billion people living in poverty. How are we going to solve that if life is getting worse for them? It's easy, isn't it, to think that's a big number. How on earth do we here help solve that problem? We can feel overwhelmed. How can the problems, um, you know, your team who are going off to Zambia next month, they're going to see things and they're going to be thinking, how is this going to be solved Even if our hearts are willing, our minds can't always imagine how it's possible. Now, in this story, we see that actually the disciples have a limit on how they see things. It's like their imagination has not been freed up to see what's possible with God because Jesus sees things really differently to how the disciples do. He sees that with God, all things are possible. So how how does he react? Well, he says, how many loaves do you have? Go and find out. And let's see what we've got here and work with it. So they come back uh, with, well, we haven't got a lot, um, two fish and five loaves. There's got to be a question there, hasn't it? Were they just looking at what they had in their small group? Because seriously, in 10,000 people, is that all the food they had? Whatever the situation was, we know that they've come back with very little food to work with. But Jesus' response is remarkable. He says, that's okay. It's enough. We're going to use what we have And with our Father in heaven, that's just fine. So next, he asked the disciples to get people seated in groups of 50 and 100. I just cannot imagine how long that took. Bit of a logistical nightmare, that number of people. Nevertheless, that's what we're told happened. And at that point, he looks to heaven. And he says, thank you, God, for what we have. He thanks God for what they have. He doesn't focus on the need, the scale of the need, what they don't have, Instead, he focuses on what they do have and his Father in heaven, who is huge. And he has huge faith in God. So much more faith in God than in the size of the problem. He's not looking at that. And the miracle takes place because Jesus sees the situation differently. 
and finds a totally different way of addressing it. He doesn't focus on their lack, what they don't have. Instead, he looks at what they do have. He gives thanks and looks at his Father in heaven. Now, this speaks so powerfully to me about how Tear Fund works, our approach in helping people who are in poverty. Let me tell you how. So at the heart of our working with um, local communities is our commitment to working with local churches. And we have a whole process that's developed over the last 20 or so years, which um, works to help churches see their situation differently. So if you can imagine people living like um, Jemana and people like Teresa, if they're in communities where Tear Fund's supporting the churches, what we're doing is we're saying, will you and two of the people, pick two people from your church, remind me your name, Stuart, Stuart and two people from the church, we put our resources as Tear Fund into you and you and you, and we help you People who probably have a much lower education level, well, tell me, they've got a much lower education level than you lot, and helping them understand the Bible, what it speaks to um, people's situations, and how they can help people discover that for themselves. So we invest in leadership training in people in churches. They then go to their local church, having been taught, and they help the people read the Bible for themselves to think differently. So let me show you how this works. If we can have the next picture up, we've got a picture of a woman called Mary, who is someone I met on the first visit I did with Tear Fund to Uganda. And she, um, this is when I saw her first. We'd been worshipping in church, and she was radiant. And I thought, she's amazing. I want to know her story. So I took a picture of her, because she was just so radiant. Talked to her afterwards, and she invited us to go back to her village, which looked very much like Teresa's village. It was a collection of mud hut houses with grass-roofed, thatched um, roofs. And she began to tell us her story, how her husband had deserted her many years ago, leaving her with four children. And she lived like Teresa, going and working on someone else's land, um, growing crops for them, and being paid in kind with some food to take home for her family. So every day... She was working to keep them fed and alive. And she had no hope that things would ever change for her. It was grinding poverty. And she said, then I heard something was going on at the local church. So I went along as an intruder to find out more because I wasn't a believer. So what was happening is that Tear to trained the people at her church, and they were doing these Bible study sessions where they look at the Bible over a course of a number of hours. And these are people who don't read a lot. But they're told the story. They think about what it means for them. She said, I walked into the church and they were doing a Bible study on the feeding of the 5,000. And she said, I heard there was a God who cares about hungry people. We don't really read that, do we, when we read this story? It's not the first thing we hear or understand from it. But for her, this was music to her ears. She's suddenly hearing, like I, as a, a hungry teenager for meaning in life, she, as a woman who is trying to keep her kids alive, is hearing the dynamic message of the Bible that God cares about hungry people and he helps them. And as they talked about it together, what it meant, they realized that actually the key for the disciples then was working what they did have to meet the needs. So they as a bunch of people all sat there and they discussed and were helped to think about what it meant for them as hungry people, as disciples of Jesus today, to work with what they have to overcome the need they have. And so 
they started talking about, well, for us, living in a rural context, that means growing crops, selling them, so that we can do a little bit more, then we can get some animals, do a little bit more. And when I met Mary, she had gone home to her children, she told me, and she told them this story, this is what we're going to do. And they started growing crops everywhere, selling them. They got some hens, more eggs, chicks, sold the hens, more of those. They got goats, then they got pigs with piglets, ended up getting cows, they could plow some more land. When I met her, one of her sons had got married and she'd had enough cows by that point to give a dowry for him to get married. And two of her children, Joseph and Angel, get that? Mary, Joseph and Angel. So Joseph and Angel, she had had enough money to put them through school and Angel had just done her O-levels for those of you who are older, they do in Uganda, uh, GCSEs. And she's She's now, well, this, do you know, this was five years ago. I'm dying to know what's happened now because she was at that point, they were saving up for her to do her A-levels. And life has, no wonder she's radiant. Life's changed completely. There's a future. And there's connection with the living God who's changed everything. And she's seen that the Bible is powerful to change lives. And so churches, this is what we're doing. We're training people to help people discover what the Bible says, to believe that story over their lives rather than the story for them, which is that you're poor, you've just got to wait till you go to heaven or some charity from the West comes and doles you out some handouts. No, there's a different story for God's people. And God's people are becoming the catalyst in their communities to help other people realize that, that there's a God who cares for them. And transformation is happening a whole, across whole communities. Now, the glorious thing about the way that we work is that um, you start with the local church, help them become the catalyst, a bit like yeast, and they then become this um, influence within the whole community to help everybody change. And we use... Um, for those of you who understand community development, we use an asset-based community development pro pro um, process, which is around helping people discover what they've got. What have you got in your hand? What are the two fish, the five loaves that you've got? It's a secular model of development that is absolute genius, and it fits with our biblical picture of what life is like. So in whole communities, they are realizing, look at those Christians, look at their lives, things better for them. And then when the Christians come saying, we can do stuff together, they're like, yes, let's do stuff together. And they start schools, they start clinics, and they dig, uh, they dig, they make roads, they dig wells. And then the training goes on to help them around advocacy, to help them have a voice, to come up with a vision for their community that they can talk to their local authorities about and draw down government resources from the, within their own countries for education and it's dynamite it's amazing and uh, this is the kind of transformation and these sort of miracles where whole communities are changing um, it's so like for me the feeding the 5,000 this story you start with a little but when you have faith and you look to God amazing miracles are possible so Tear Fund's been doing development for 50 years, and we found new ways of addressing poverty that don't cost the earth, where thousands can be impacted rather than a few. And we've discovered ways of helping that don't cost the earth. And there are miraculous results. And rather than coming from outside, 
with our resources and our ideas, we help release the potential within communities for people to use what's there already. The people, their imagination, their skills, their land, their entrepreneurial abilities. And this approach, it really values people and it doesn't just treat them as a kind of problem that needs fixing, but it recognizes them as people made within the image of God who've got capacity that needs releasing within them. And it respects them that they've got ideas and skills to bring to the table. It empowers them to change their own situations. So we help communities lift themselves out of poverty rather than doing it ourselves. And phenomenal miracles are taking place. So um, we've been doing this for about since the beginning of the century, since 2001, and we've reached more than 10 million people across 41 countries. So that's quite impressive, isn't it? When you think about 10,000 people being fed by two fish and five loaves, to impact 10 million people is not bad. And we're scaling that work up across whole denominations in whole, to change countries. In Kenya, the Archbishop of uh, Kenya was someone who was um, invested in by Tear Fund as a trainer. He was a bishop doing it in his diocese, training other bishops, and now he's over the whole church wanting to roll it out across the whole country. We've got the same thing happening in Rwanda and in Kenya, just extraordinary. And for you to know that what you give as a church is helping that happen. It costs 12 pounds to change someone's life through this process. And so the money you give, it may feel when you look at a billion people trapped in poverty, it may feel it's not much, but it's so powerful in the hands of God to, re to bring about incredible impact in people's lives. So that's the global kind of picture. Now, what about you here? Because I know that you are faced not just with a global problem, but also a local problem. What is God calling you as disciples today? And you've got the same challenges facing you. It's like, okay, so we've got a response, a responsibility to respond to those in poverty, but how? How do we do it? And this is where we need wisdom because the story has changed around how we help people. And anyone who's been involved with development will have seen that journey from the giving, just giving handouts. You know, it's widely recognized it's not the best way. It's more empowering to help people, to empower them. So, it's really worthwhile connecting in locally with these organizations that you support, the Cambridge Food Bank, the Church's Homeless Project, uh, Beesome, all of these, they're in these, go afterwards, pick one of these up, because these organizations have learned how to do this well, and they will help you. And I know as you walk past people, there's that gut thing that we just want to, we like, Lord, am I meant to just give them money? Am I meant to do that? But actually, those organizations will tell you the most useful thing that you can do is support the work that they are doing that's looking to help them in a holistic way, those people. It's not just a kind of handout that's giving a quick fix to them to do something right now, but they're working long-term to support people. So there are questions in this about how we help people, and the Lord wants to teach us about how to respond to need in the world and how to do it well. There are also, I think, challenges for you about how you use your voices because you've got potential with your voice to speak up on behalf of people. And let's not underestimate that and just be lazy with that um, capacity we've got. So use it for campaigning. Use it for writing to your MP about the things that matter to you. But make your voice count and speak up for 
the things that God would speak up for. So I think as we draw to a close now, I'd love us to pray because this is a season where we're approaching Pentecost next weekend. It's a reminder that the Holy Spirit is poured out afresh on God's people to empower us to live his life. If he's calling us to this kind of life, he's going to empower us to live it. He's going to give us everything that we need to do it. So we do not need to be overwhelmed. We don't need to be scared about the situations we face. We need to look to him and he'll give us everything we need. So um, I'm going to invite you to stand, actually. Why don't you all stand? Because I want us to actively present ourselves to the Lord to offer everything that we have to him. So let's close our eyes from distraction around us. And it may help you if you want to. You can do this in your mind or you can do this with your hands. But do some gesture in some way that opens yourself to the Lord. You might want to hold your hands out. Otherwise, just do that in a mental way in your mind. But just opening yourself to his work. And I thank you, Father, for your work in this place, for the people gathered here that you are at work in, that you're so committed to, that your Holy Spirit is poured out upon us, given to us to lead us into all truth, to empower us to go and to make you known in word and deed. So I pray, Lord, that you'd fall afresh on your church in this place, that today, next week, in the coming weeks and months, your people here would know a fresh touch of your Holy Spirit. We just know, Lord, that we cannot live this life without you. We can't do this in our own effort, Lord. Our resources run out. Our energy runs out. Our compassion runs out. So we need you, Lord. So Holy Spirit, you are given to us. Thank you, Father, that you pour your Holy Spirit into our hearts. And would you come now, Lord, and pour your Holy Spirit into the hearts of each believer here. Just take a moment to allow your spirit to be softened towards him and receive him. Father, we thank you for the many ways in which you've blessed us. With our minds, our abilities, our resources, our time. And Lord, we offer ourselves to you and we ask that you would take us and that you would work through us, that we might be a blessing. You'd bless us to be a blessing to those who are lost, who are in need, Pray that you'd soften our hearts and our spirits, that we would not just live for ourselves, but that we would live for you and give ourselves for the least and the lost.